Well, good morning. Great to see you. My name is Rob Sweet. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. Welcome back, right? For most of us, I know this is not technically the first Sunday in January. It's the second. But uh, this tends to be the Sunday that everybody comes back. So I know there's a bunch of you that have been traveling. You're kind of getting back into the rhythm. I know that's true with us and my family. School has started for some or starts back tomorrow. Some of you, this may be a New Year's resolution for you to be at church we're glad to see you. Glad you're here. Hope, hope that you're able to have a welcoming experience. We'll mention this. It is a great time to connect to fellowship, so I hope you take advantage of that. Well, we are jumping back into a series that we left off prior to the Christmas uh, time, the Advent season. We were studying the book of Acts. We got through the first six chapters, or partway through chapter six, and we're going to pick that up this morning. We thought what we would do is recap and summarize. So this is a little bit like if you're catching in the middle of the, the TV series, you know, previously in uh, plan A or whatever it is, right? Uh, we talked about the idea that the church is God's plan A for the world. And so we have A's everywhere. You got this big letter A in front of me. Why can we say the church is God's plan A for the world? Only because Jesus is God's plan A for the world. The church is the body of Christ. And so I'm going to recap this morning where all we've been. And then next week, we're going to pick up in our text and continue through chapter six into chapter seven. Our goal is we're going to go through Easter. So Easter Sunday will be finished with the book of Acts. So we won't be able to cover every single verse and chapter because Acts is such a long book. We're going to give you as much as we can up until Easter in kind of a survey format as we go through the book of Acts. Now, let me set up this message this morning by saying, this. Uh, anybody watch a movie over the last four or five weeks? All right, Christmas breaks movie time. Okay, right. You either went to the movies or you sat in your living room or some other friends. You put on a Christmas special. Maybe you went and you saw the new Star Wars movie. Um, my family and I saw that. Now, we weren't one of those like first night like Star Wars junkies, but I grew up watching Star Wars. My girls are just kind of old enough now to like it. And, you know, there's a female character in there which appeals to them, so they really enjoyed it. And we were watching Star Wars, you know, The Last Jedi, and I realized there's a theme in that movie movie that is in a whole lot of movies. A common theme in movies is this idea of the origin story. Okay, so if you've watched The Last Jedi, and if you haven't, I'm not going to give anything away. Okay, so like don't plug your ears or anything like that. No spoilers here. But you've got this character of Rey, which is the female character. The whole movie, she's kind of obsessed with figuring out where she comes from, who her parents are. Why does she care so much about that? Well, she needs to know what her identity is. She's searching for her origin story. Uh, another movie, really clear example. Uh, this is one of my favorites. I'm not ashamed to admit I have young kids still, so they, they've, they've just kind of gotten through the stage or still in the stage in one or two cases of watching Disney animated films. Um, I won't apologize to say I enjoy some of those as well. One of my favorites is The Lion King. You know, the story of this young lion that goes away from his true identity and, you know, eats, you know, grubs and bugs, and then he's called back by his father, you know, and Remember who you are. There's that famous scene. And he comes back to Pride Rock to reclaim. What's going on? Simba is remembering. He's coming back to his true identity. Uh, I think there's something in us, and, and movies play into this theme, that for all of us, we realize the path to flourishing lies in coming to terms with who we were created to be and living that out to the best of our ability. Learning and coming to terms with who we're made to be, who we're created to be, and then living that out to the best of our ability. So if you made some New Year's resolutions this year, and by the way, good for you if you did, right? I haven't yet. Is it too late? I don't know. We're a week in. Uh, if you made some New Year's resolutions, I bet they all relate to this idea of you're trying to be a better version of who you think you're created to be. 
So you wanna lose a little weight because you know you're meant to be a healthy, flourishing human being. You wanna be a better mom, you wanna be a better dad, you wanna you know, put some more discipline into your life. Whatever it is that you wanna do, change some habits up because you understand, look, I'm created to be a certain way. I'm created to flourish and I wanna live that out to the best of my ability. That's what we're trying to do right now at Fellowship Bible Church. That's why we're studying the origin story of the church. That's why we find ourselves in the book of Acts in this season of renewal at fellowship. We've learned an awful lot already about the essential DNA of the church. And that's what I wanna recap. And I wanna say one more thing by way of introduction. This message is not just about who we're called to be collectively as a body. There's a close intersection with who you're called to be individually and who this community of faith is called to be. Now, here's here's what I mean by that. Wherever you are right now in your walk with God, your relationship to your creator is meant to be something that's in the core of you. Is it not? Like, it's part of your core identity. Your relationship to God, assuming you believe in God, and honestly, if you don't even believe in God, that's still a core part of you, is wrestling through what do you believe, right? So for all of us, a core piece of our identity is our connection to or our relationship with our creator. How is that relationship developed and lived out? Well, in a, I just fell off that step. That was good. <laughs> I'm glad, Joe, thank you for putting all the steps down here instead of just that stage. That would have been ugly. Uh, how is that lived out? Well, your relationship to God is lived out in a community of faith. It's lived out by gathering together. It's lived out in the church context and in small group context and in friendships and families, trying to learn together who we are called to be and then living it out to the best of our ability. I want to say it this way. Don't be too quick to separate the health and flourishing of your community of faith with the health and flourishing of your own spiritual life. You can't easily differentiate the two. You see that all throughout scripture in the story of Acts. So your flourishing as human beings is related to our flourishing as a church. In fact, you know, I'd say it this way. I want us collectively as a church to grow and flourish because I want you individually, each of you, to grow and flourish. I, I want you to be filled with overflowing, to, with the fullness of the knowledge and love of Christ, as, as Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. I, I want your marriages to be strong. I want your families and kids to thrive. I want you to live with a sense of purpose. I want you to have some joy in your life. Why do I want all of this? Well, number one, I care about you as one of your pastors, but number two, I know that for you, you individually and us collectively, you cannot differentiate so cleanly between your flourishing and our flourishing as a community of faith. So how do we get there? Well, we're going to look at the essential DNA of the church, and we're going to talk about three themes that emerge. So here's our game plan. I'm going to recap six chapters of this book so that if you weren't here in the fall, or even if you were here, this will recap it for you. And I'm gonna go at lightning speed. And I'm literally gonna invite you to flip through the pages with me if you have your Bible. So go ahead and open up to Acts chapter one. And I'm gonna summarize one, two, three, four, five, six. Then I'm gonna come back and say, of all that we've learned so far, there are three core themes that you might say represents the essential DNA of the church in Acts that needs to also be the essential DNA of us collectively, which means it needs to be core to us individually as well. If you wanna flourish in 2018, these are three great themes for you individually, for us collectively as a church. All right, so let me jump into the book of Acts chapter one. Acts was written by a physician named Luke. 
He was also a historian. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he was close to many of the 12 disciples. He was a very careful, uh, detail-oriented uh, narrator, historian. In fact, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. You know, you've heard Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when he introduces Acts in the first few verses, he's writing to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, but he was a friend of Luke's. He was probably a prominent person in the Christian church. And he's saying, I'm continuing the narrative from my last book, which was the Gospel. So you might think of Luke and Acts as one narrative. In fact, if you look at the title in your book, it'll say something like the Acts of the Apostles. I don't love that title as the traditional title, but I think a better title that we might have given to it, and you know, the authors of the biblical books didn't write the titles, right? Editors came in later and wrote the titles of the books. I think a better title would be something like the continuing acts of Jesus through the Spirit in the church. That would kind of better capture the movement here in Acts. It's the Acts of Jesus continuing now through the Spirit in the church. So chapter 1 describes the conception of the church. Jesus commissions the disciples on a mission. The most important verse in the whole book of Acts is Acts 1, 8. We've talked about it a lot. Let's talk about it briefly again. We'll put it on the screen. Look at it too in your Bible, Acts 1, 8. I'll read it. Jesus says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. In this verse, we find the mission of the church, which is also kind of the identity of the church. Here's our identity as a church, men and women. Even 2,000 years later, it's still true. We are spirit-empowered people who are witnesses of Jesus scattered about the earth. Spirit-empowered people, witnesses of Jesus, scattered out the earth. That's our identity right here from the literal words of Acts 1.8. Here we are in Middle Tennessee in 2,000 years, a little less than 2,000 years after you know, 30 AD when Jesus would have said this, approximately 30 AD. And here we are scattered about the earth. People of God, we're witnesses of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. That's our identity. Now, the rest of chapter one kind of describes Jesus' ascension into heaven. It's kind of interesting that he just gives them this commission and then says, now go for it. You know, I'll see you on the flip side, so to speak. But he's not gonna leave them alone, really, right? Because he's about to send his presence through the Spirit. So that whereas in, you know, Jesus... The, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the God-man, he can only physically be one place at one time, talking, you know, being with, healing. But when he ascends into heaven and later the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God comes, now he can be everywhere with his, with his disciples. And so it is true when he says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. Now in, this, in the form of the, the spirit, or the person, I should say, of the spirit. So we move out of chapter one. And by the way, a little footnote, the end of chapter one, they replace Judas, who was that 12th disciple that had betrayed Christ. They, betray, uh, they replace him with a man named Matthias. And so they now have 12 disciples or 12 apostles, as they're called in the book of Acts. You get to chapter two, now the spirit comes. And so if the commissioning by Jesus in chapter one was the conception of the church, the coming of the spirit's the birth the church is born. It's the day of Pentecost. The disciples are in a room together. They're praying. Suddenly the spirit comes and gives them 
power. The word in Greek we talked about for power is dynamite. It's dunamis. They're able to now do something that they weren't able to do before. And the first thing they're able to do that they weren't able to do before is speak foreign languages. So this idea of of the the gift of tongues, at least in Acts chapter 2, is literal languages, foreign languages that they did not have the ability to speak, they're now able to speak. Why does God do that miracle through them? Because it draws the crowd around and allows Peter to preach his first sermon. So most of Acts chapter 2 is Peter's first sermon. Here's the bullet point outline. Peter said, Jesus is Messiah. You all are responsible for his death. You know, me included, Peter's saying. We are responsible for his death. But he didn't stay dead. And the offer on the table is pardon and true life. That's four key points. He starts in the Old Testament, unpacks it all. But it's basically that Jesus is the Christ. He died, was raised again. You can be saved. Now, the response of the people in verse 38 and 39, I want to highlight that. So look at Acts 2, verse 38, 39. We'll put it on the screen as well. Or the, the people rather say, what shall we do? And then this is Peter's response. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So baptism then kind of becomes a key marker in the early church. Baptism is a tangible symbol of someone who's put their faith in Jesus. They're now identifying with Jesus. And we talked, and a whole week we devoted to baptism here uh, in early November. And I did an illustration of cloth. You know, cloth in that, in that day and time was baptized. It was, it was immersed. That's what baptism means, immersion. It was immersed in a dye and pulled out a different color. That's what baptism is. It identifies you with kind of the, the royal color, with your follower of Jesus if you've been baptized. So you can imagine these 3,000 people that, that come to Christ through Peter's first sermon. Now they're all getting dunked. You know, they're all getting baptized and the whole city is like, what's going on here? They're being identified with Jesus Christ. All right, that's chapter two. The very end of chapter two is a beautiful progress report of the church. I'll come back to that at the end, but suffice it to say God is on the move here and his church is thriving. Chapter three describes another miracle. There was a man that would stand every day on the steps of the temple. Actually, he wasn't standing at all. You know, he was lame. So he'd be sitting or he'd be lying on the steps. And one day, Peter and John come up and he asks them for money. And their response in Acts chapter 3 is, listen, we don't have money, but what we do have we'll give you. Stand up and walk in the name of Jesus. Can you imagine what that man would have thought? And and then he he starts feeling strength in his legs. And the scripture says he he leapt up. He didn't just stand up. He began to leap around and rejoice and praise God. Well, guess what happens? That draws a crowd too. And so Peter preaches his second sermon. It's the same as the first. Jesus is Messiah. We're responsible for his death, right? Because of our sin and rebellion. But he was raised again so that we can be forgiven and have new life. And many people again come to Christ. That's chapter three. Now chapter four introduces the first opposition to this movement of God. The first ones to come against the Christian church are ironically the religious leaders. I guess it's not so ironic when you think that those are the same ones that came against Jesus himself. 
right, that came against God himself in the flesh. So the religious leaders get basically jealous, and they're like, man, they're attracting a crowd. You need to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. In fact, they, they put um, Peter and John in prison. They hold them overnight. The next day, they assemble the same council that condemned Jesus to death. That council is reassembled, and, and Peter and, and John are, are put on trial, and they command them, you may no longer teach the name of Jesus. Now, that put Peter and John in a conundrum because Jesus was really clear their mission is to be witnesses and make disciples of Jesus. And now the religious authorities who had the power to kill them are saying, you may not do that. So who are they going to follow? Well, it was an easy decision for Peter and John. And I want you to see uh, how they explained what decision they were making to these religious authorities. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. Peter's response is uh, kind of epic. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What, what a great response. Like, you do what you feel is right, but as for me, I cannot stop speaking about this. Now, they were released, by the way, Peter and John were, and it says because the, the, the authorities were afraid the people would rise up. They couldn't deny this real miracle had just been done. So they release Peter and John. They tell them not to speak anymore about Jesus, but of course, they don't obey that uh, command. And then in the end of chapter four, verse 32 to 37, we get another progress report. And now the church is still thriving, even amidst persecution, even amidst some adversity and some opposition. In fact, the emphasis at the end of chapter four is how well these people were loving each other, sharing all their possessions, everything in need. We get to chapter five, uh, not the cheeriest of chapters. This is the story of this couple that had a piece of land. They sold the land and, and they kept some of the money of the land to themselves and the rest of the money they gave to the church, but they lied about it. And they said, this is all the money. You see, their motivation was they wanted to be seen as generous and they kind of wanted to get some, you know, pats on the back, etc. And so Peter catches them in the lie and he calls it out of them. And what's really interesting is Peter sort of you know, goes behind the, the curtain and he says, here's what's really going on, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, this, that was the, the couple's names. He said, it's actually Satan, the deceiver, that is trying to infiltrate the church through this lie. And so, you know, as soon as um, and Peter kind of calls them out on this lie, they, they drop dead. Like, they're, they're gone. And so the church becomes terrified, as I would be too, now, here's the interesting thing, and you know, we, we took some time to kind of carefully explain this, because I think this can be a, a pretty controversial passage, and, and I don't think we can work our way around the fact that you know, God just did something that's hard to explain. You know, this couple told a lie. They were doing it for all the wrong reasons. They're trying to make themselves look good. They were deceiving the apostles and deceiving their fellow Christians and brothers and sisters. But why did God have to kill them? And what we talked about is the idea that this church learned from this the lesson that sin is serious. And why is sin serious? Well, sin is always connected to death. And so that was the big lesson the church has learned. Sin's connected to death. Now, not always literal physical death like Ananias and Sapphira, but the whole scripture is clear that you can't have sin without the scent of death. 
Think about all the death, so to speak, in your life. Broken relationships, broken integrity, broken innocence, broken promises. Sin is the root of all of that. Either your sin or someone else's sin. You can't separate sin from death. And this was a very visible, tangible lesson the church needed to learn in its infancy. And it's not the normal way that God deals with sin in the church. How did the church respond? Well, they responded really well. They got the message. And so we get yet another progress report halfway through chapter five here. Look at 514. This is right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira. How about this? All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Like, can you imagine that? Like, man, did you hear about what happened to those two people that disobeyed God and they died right away? I want some of that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to join in that cause. No, there's something spiritual that's going on here. There's an awe for God's power. And yet there's also a sense of, but this is the safe place through the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, sin is serious, but grace is tangible and grace is real. And don't think for a moment that there wasn't any other sin involved in the body, all right? God does not normally deal with sin this way. He did it in this instance because the church had to learn an important message about the relationship between sin and death. All right, chapter five continues. And you know, this was a text we weren't able to spend much time on, but the religious leaders, not surprisingly, are, are still trying to squash this movement of God. And, and so this time they arrest all 12 apostles. Uh, we arrested Peter and John before, that didn't work. We're gonna arrest all 12 of them. Guess what happens? An angel in the middle of the night comes, releases them, and they immediately go back to the temple to teach about Jesus. And so there's this humorous scene in chapter five, the second half of chapter five, where the council is gathered once again to say, what should we do with these men that are in jail for preaching Jesus? And someone comes to them and says, uh, excuse me, sorry to interrupt your plotting, but they're actually out of jail and they're already teaching back in the temple. So they get furious, they round them up, they're gonna kill them this time. But then a man named Gamaliel, who is a, a famous um, uh, scholar, famous leader. You read about him in other places as well. Gamaliel speaks up and using wisdom that I think was given by God, even though he wasn't a follower of Christ, Gamaliel says this. This is not the first time that someone has claimed to be a Messiah. And look what happened to all those other movements. If this one is also false, it will end on its own. But if God is in this, we don't want to align ourselves against God. So let's just let them be. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Here we are, how many thousands of miles away from Jerusalem and several, couple thousand years later, and we're gathered in mass teaching the name of Jesus. That movement did not die. And Gamaliel's saying, listen, if it doesn't die, there's something to it. Okay, here we are 2,000 years later as the story of Acts is honestly continuing in 2018, even here in Middle Tennessee, rather remarkable. So fortunately, the council, you know, listens to that wisdom of Gamaliel and they say, all right, we're gonna whip you, we're gonna beat you, we're gonna flog you, but we're not gonna kill you. And they're released. And I want you to see the response of the uh, disciples once they're released. Uh, chapter five, look at verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council Check this next part out. This blows my mind. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Pause there for a minute. I don't know about you, but I, I, I would have left that place rejoicing 
but rejoicing that I wasn't dead. Like that's what I would have been rejoicing over. Right? They're rejoicing over the fact that they were considered worthy to suffer shame. How is this? Don't forget all these men had been with Jesus. They loved Jesus. They wanted nothing more in life than to be like Jesus. They had seen Jesus suffer. Now they had the opportunity to suffer for the sake, for the name, for the cause of Jesus. That's their greatest honor. How much we can learn from them. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Beautiful, beautiful. Then we go finally to chapter six, and I'll move quickly through this. We didn't make it all the way yet through the whole chapter, but we see at the beginning of chapter six, some tension in the church now begin to emerge from inside the church. You know, imagine factions in a Christian church, you know, and disagreements and arguments. That would certainly never happen in the first church, would it? Well, actually, it did. Uh, what was going on was there were some Greek-born Jews who were Christians and some, you might call native Hebrews who were also Christians, but from different backgrounds. And one of these groups was being overlooked in how the widows were being taken care of in the body. And so what the 12 apostles decide to do is to choose seven men to oversee the food distribution so that the apostles can focus on preaching and prayer. That's how they understood their role to be. And so what we're learning from this is there is a need in a church to have some kind of organizational system, right? Any kind of organism needs some kind of leadership. It needs some guidance so that something like this won't happen. And so even today, you know, churches all over the world, you know, have different kinds of organizational systems. I don't think Acts dicks dictates the kind of church government you need to have, but I think it's clear that you gotta have some kind of organizational system. And what do you do? You pray for wisdom as you make decisions of how to govern your church, just as these 12 disciples did. All right, last thing I'll say, and then I wanna get to some, uh, not last thing I say, sorry, you're not that lucky, okay? <laughs> last thing I'll say for this recap before we get into the, the three themes and move towards some application. I hope you see that already a pattern has emerged. Here's the, the pattern. The church is confronted by challenge after challenge after challenge, some from outside, some from inside. Each time their response is to depend upon God for help and they see God intervene. Now, sometimes God intervenes supernaturally, like when he released the disciples from prison supernaturally. Sometimes he intervenes by giving wisdom to the leaders to solve a problem like this chapter six I just explained. But they're asking him for help. They come across a problem, they pray. They ask him for help. What happens? God intervenes. And then the church flourishes. So all these progress reports, you know, um, and, and there's one more that I think I missed. Look, look at it real quick. I, I think I missed this one. Sometimes I forget what I've said in which service. That's kind of annoying. But look at verse uh, seven in chapter six, the last progress report. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Pretty significant that the priests of Israel of the temple were starting to realize, oh, they're connecting the dots. Jesus actually is Messiah and they're coming to faith now. So the church continues to flourish despite all these challenges because the church is going to God in prayer, seeking God's will, and God is answering their prayers. They're emerging on the other side of these challenges with, uh, with, with growth and, and flourishing and even more 
um, uh, growth and multiplication despite the persecution. All right. What are the major themes? What would we say is the essential, the core DNA of the early church that needs to be true of us, Fellowship Bible Church of Middle Tennessee? What would be true, core DNA of identity for you as a follower of Jesus, those of you who are, so that you can move toward, in 2018, more closely aligning yourself with your core identity as a child of God and a worshiper of Christ? There are three, and there's a lot more, but, but I think there's three enormous ones that have emerged so far in our study that I want to highlight. And before I mention these, I've got to say this. In my prep this week, I had some moments of joy as I was thinking about these themes and then thinking about our church. And I realized that each of these three themes, although this wasn't planned this way, I've seen some things start to happen in our midst organically along these three themes as we've been teaching through this book. Now, I, I know that's supposed to happen because the word of God is living and active and as we study it together, God's on the move in our midst and he uses the scripture to change things in our church, in our lives. That's always true. But I think it's been so specific and in certain cases, so spectacular that I wanna share that joy with you. So each theme I'm gonna talk about, then I'm gonna give you some examples of how I see this theme emerging and playing itself out even over the last several months right here at Fellowship. So theme number one, here it is. The church is designed to be dependent on the spirit. Therefore, we must be devoted to prayer. Now, you can't miss the idea of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. In fact, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, empowers them. They have no power apart from the Spirit. That's why they could not complete the mission until the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. That's why they were hiding in an upper room, and then suddenly once the Spirit comes, they're proclaiming Christ boldly in the streets, and they never stop. Is it because they're such incredible, wonderful, dedicated Christians? No. It's because of the Holy Spirit and they were living in dependence of that spirit. What does prayer have to do with it? Prayer is the posture of dependence. Notice they were praying when the spirit came. Three different times in the book of Acts, this church is described as devoted to prayer. Chapter 1, 14, chapter 1 verse 14, chapter 2, verse 42, chapter 6, verse 4. The beginning, the middle, and end of what we've studied so far. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Now, our society thinks of prayer as weakness because you only pray when you have nothing better to do. Is kind of the culture and kind of the posture of our society. Scripture would teach us that the posture of dependency is the posture of strength. Because what you're doing when you pray, what you're doing when you're needy for God, is you're inviting true power to invade your lack of power, you see. You're asking for help. You're saying, I'm weak. You are strong. Would you invade? Would you, would you fill? Would you live through this vessel? That is a frail human being. Right? That's what prayer actually is. So I don't think you could have been around fellowship for the last three or four months and not kind of picked up on a renewed emphasis on prayer. 
And I'm thrilled by this. And, and, I, and I have to say, a, a lot of this has emerged from, from Lloyd. And it's kind of bled out into the rest of us on the elder team and the teaching team. And, and, and I want you to know that. I think that's significant that Lloyd, who's been here since the very start of this church, and we're about to hit this 20-year anniversary, when he looks back on 20 years, he would say what he said in this room last week, hey, one of my regrets is we, we, we've not been enough of a people of prayer. And so this theme has been emerging. And I see it in the book of Acts. We must be a people devoted to prayer. I want us to be a people devoted to prayer. I know you all do. Man, our, our emails have been exploding through the 40 days of prayer that we did in the fall. It's like, people are like, man, this is healthy for us. It's healthy for us individually and collectively. We're not gonna let go of this theme. I think those, the 40 days, man, God did some remarkable work in us in that time period. In fact, I wanna ask you for a favor. If you signed up to be a part of that 40 days through text or email, you received one last text or email about a week ago asking you to fill out a short survey. It's just, I think, four questions long. Here's the purpose of the survey. We believe God did some things in our midst, i.e. in you. He revealed some things. He led some things. He spoke to us literally through our posture of prayer. We've been praying for fellowship. We want to know how God's been answering those prayers in your heart, and your life. That's what that's all about. If you would engage in that survey, just take 10, 15 minutes to do that. That would be a way you can serve your body, your church, by doing that. So thank you for it. All right, that's theme number one. We must be devoted to prayer because our core identity is we're a people who are dependent on God. All right, theme number two. The church is designed to be a community of faith. Therefore, we must be devoted to one another. Now, just like you can't miss the emphasis on dependence on the Spirit and prayer, you cannot also miss the emphasis in Acts on their devotion to one another. Man, you know, we find them eating meals together. We find them praying together, sharing together, meeting each other's needs. And early church history tells us that this is how society remarked about this crazy thing called this Christian movement or the way or whatever they called it in the early days. As they said, this is a people that love each other. And isn't it great how that's one of the things Jesus said on the last night of his life when he's sitting around his last supper with his disciples. He said, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And here it is in the book of Acts that's coming true. Now, we often say, wouldn't it be incredible if we could experience biblical stuff, you know, in our day? Like, wouldn't it be cool if God was still doing miracles? Well, by the way, he is, he is. Wouldn't it be cool if our church would look a little bit like the church in Acts? Guys, it is. It, it is. It, it's starting to emerge even more. Let, let me just give you one example. Um, after we taught on this passage from, from chapter four, where the people were sharing all that they have, we, we said, we're going to do an experiment here at Fellowship. If anybody has a need, write it on a card, put it on a board. If you're able to meet the need, grab it off the board. Guys, we were inundated with stories. My only regret of that exercise is that we, we didn't really figure out a way to share the stories well with you. We, we, may, we may do that in the future through a video or something. But here's the thing. I heard stories every single week, almost daily, of people in tears saying, I, I never dreamed someone would meet this need. I just put it up there. And an anonymous person or someone I never met before. I mean, I, I, I love the stories we've been hearing. And I read in Acts and I'm looking in 2017 and 2018 at Fellowship. I'm like, this is the same spirit. This is the same Jesus. This is the same church. These are the same followers, you see. 
It is true of us. And it's emerging to be true of us. Now, I want to talk to you about this together campaign. You know, they, the, Will and Lauren were talking about this earlier. Listen, if you think this is just for you know, those of you that are new and you want to meet some people, that, that's not what, what all this is. You know, it, it is that, but it's much more than that. This is for all of us because we need to be devoted to one another. Fellowship is a church that has a rich history of doing life together in small group contexts and building relationships. We've gotten away from that in the last five or six years. We've gotten away from an emphasis on that for a number of reasons. You know, no one in particular uh, is, to, is to blame for that. We need to bring that back. We need to say, listen, I'm not just going to show up on Sunday mornings. I'm going to engage in fellowship because I'm called to be a people who is known. Like I'm called to know others and I'm called to be known. I'm called to share my life. And I, I think I was so excited to see what God did with that needs board. I'm like, what would it look like for our small groups to start digging in deeper? So I'm gonna encourage you, if you're not in a group, if you're not serving somewhere on a team or you're not in a class, grab onto one of those three opportunities or two of the, or all of them. Go talk to those folks. We wanna get you connected. We, we're gonna talk about this for two or three weeks all right, and then our emphasis is going to shift away from connect or, or from together, I should say. So I really want to encourage you to do that. That's part of what I think God is calling us to in a new season of fellowship is being devoted to one another. I'm already starting to see it emerge. That's theme number two. Theme number three, I need to go through this one a little bit quicker. The church is God's plan A for the world. You've heard that before, haven't you? Therefore, we must be devoted to making disciples. You know, Jesus gave his church a mission. And so all throughout Acts in these little progress reports we read, you know, the progress reports aren't just talking about how well they were praying and how well they were studying God's word and how well they were meeting each other's needs. All that's in there. But every single one says, and God was adding to their numbers. And many were coming to faith. And the church was multiplying. And I want to be real clear on this, guys. It's not about packing out a room on Sunday mornings. It's not about, hey, can we go from uh, 3,000 people to 5,000 people? Can we be the biggest church around? That's not the kind of multiplication we're talking about. We're talking about needing to devote ourselves to making disciples of Jesus. That's people that don't yet know Christ coming to faith. That's people that are new in their faith, taking a next step of growth. That's people that are mature in their faith, learning how to come back around and help others grow and share their faith. You see, I don't think we've done a great job at fellowship of outlining for you all a clear discipleship path. How do I take my next step? We want to answer that question for you in 2018 because we've got to be devoted to making disciples. And I see this theme starting to emerge on our elder team and on our staff team, and even with you in a strong way. We've got to be clear. Our mission is about making disciples of Jesus. So here's how we started this whole series, by asking you to write down some names of people that need Christ, either because they don't know Christ or because they're struggling right now and they need to take a step of faith toward Christ. Some of you still have those names. If you don't, I want to encourage you, grab the front of the program. It's got that letter A on it again. A stands for God's plan A. It also stands for answer. <laughs> it's their answer. Jesus is their answer. I want you to write those names, three or four names. Start praying for them. I actually believe 2018 is going to be a year where many of those names we're praying for are going to take a step of faith. 
Why do I think that? Well, I'm not necessarily a glasses half full person all the time. I just believe what I see is true in the word of God. And I see some things emerging here at Fellowship that I'm terribly excited about. And I have no question in my mind that a renewed focus on making disciples of Jesus is gonna bear fruit. So let's be praying for these people. Write their names down. Put it on your mirror in your car or somewhere where you'll see them. And let's be praying for them. I think God will use us as a church to help them take a step of faith. All right. Last thing here on this theme of making disciples. Discipleship in Acts always started with baptism. That's the first thing a new disciple of Jesus would do is they would get baptized. In three weeks, right here, we're gonna have a baptism service. Now, I taught on baptism in, on November 5th in this room, and then we showed you a video of some students being baptized a, a couple Wednesdays earlier in our fellowship student ministries. And I, I said this, I said, listen, we wanna celebrate this because for a church, people taking steps of faith is the equivalent of, of a touchdown. Okay, now, you know, I'm, some of you know I'm a big Georgia football fan. Okay, don't, don't, don't be all any roll tides at me, okay? All right, we got a little bit of an important game tomorrow, okay? And uh, you better believe I'm gonna be glued to that television and every time Georgia scores a touchdown, I'm gonna go berserk. For our church, someone taking a step in obedience of faith is a touchdown and all the glory goes to God. So here's what I'm gonna invite us to do as we start wrapping up the service today is we're gonna show you another video of some baptisms. And this is gonna get you hopefully anticipating what God's gonna be doing in this room right here on January 28th, three weeks from now when we have a baptism service here. This video comes from our Franklin campus. They had a baptism service uh, in mid-November and there were 10 individuals, about five kids and, and five adults that took a step of obedience to Christ through baptism. I want you to watch this and then let's cheer and clap. Let's celebrate what God is doing. Each one of these lives represents a touchdown for the body of Christ, even here at Fellowship. So let's take a look. I need Jesus because I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I want to be baptized to show everyone that I want to be with him for the rest of my life. When I was in pre-K, my teacher in school taught me about Jesus. She told me that he died on the cross to pay for my sins. She also taught me Jesus could live in my heart. At bedtime that night, I prayed and asked Jesus to my life. I know he will always be with me. I have so much hope because of Jesus. I know I will get to go to heaven because of him. I want to be baptized because I want to show people that he is in my heart. I remember trusting in Jesus at a very young age in Sunday school. I prayed for forgiveness of my sins and asked him into my heart. At that time, I didn't understand the true weight of the gospel, but I knew I wanted Jesus in my life. I've always considered him my foundation and my rock, but as an adult, I've witnessed his goodness, his grace, and his mercy over and over again. He is a faithful, righteous, and loving father. He provides, redeems, and sustains. He has pursued me in times of darkness. He has rejoiced with me in times of gladness. I chose to be baptized today to show my obedience to Him and to honor Him in front of my church, my family, and my friends. The passage that I've been dwelling on throughout this time has been from the 23rd Psalm. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I love this because God is in control and he's our shepherd and he is enough and he offers me rest. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins? And are you baptized this morning as a way to identify with his death and resurrection on your behalf? Then it is our privilege this morning to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So everybody said, amen, amen. That means let it be. Let it be that there are more and more and more of those moments of fellowship. And we're anticipating three weeks from now. Uh, we have, uh, I think, about 10 people right now that have expressed to us they want to be baptized. We've got some room for more. In fact, if you have, even if you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, but you've never taken a step of baptism, in other words, you've never publicly identified yourself in this way as a follower of Jesus. What's keeping you? Nothing. Nothing. It's actually not too late for you to sign up. If you contact this week, Marilyn Duncan will put her email on the, the screen behind me. Uh, by the way, it's not lost on us that uh, you're, you're emailing someone with the last name Duncan. You know? <laughs> so... Here's what I would say. Some of you, is like I kicked in a little late. Yeah. Um, here's what I would say. As I read through Acts, I don't find any unbaptized believers of Jesus. They just don't exist. And so I, and I know there's like, well, I'm nervous, and I don't know, you know, God has to like do something big in my life, and then I'll be baptized. No, 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 no. It's a step of obedience. If not now, when? When? Just, just send an email. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not, you know, it's not, not a difficult process. We would love to baptize you on January 28th if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not yet been baptized. Well, here's where we're going. A Fellowship Bible Church. We want to be a community of faith devoted to prayer, devoted to one another, devoted to making disciples. That's where we're going. So here's how we're going to close the service. I'm going to pray. As I pray, the band's going to come out. We're going to sing a song that expresses who's in charge of all of this. It expresses our hope. It expresses our faith. And then we'll send you out. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us this text that's been preserved for nearly 2,000 years that, that helps us understand the origin story of, of even our own entity, this church. Father, for all the ways that we have inadvertently, accidentally just gotten away from the core DNA of what we're called to be, would you forgive us? 
And would you help us? And I pray this prayer not just for fellowship. I pray for the global church in 2018. Would you help us? Would you empower us by your spirit to be about what you've called us to be about? There's, I don't think, ever been a time in human history where the world does not need more than they do right now your plan A. And so God, because that plan A is Jesus and we are his body, we've got work to do. And I pray for our church, Fellowship Bible Church, right here in Brentwood and Franklin and Nashville, that we would know that you have empowered us for a purpose. In the name of Jesus, amen.